Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. This is one of my favorite breakfast hunts. Nobody does breakfast anymore quite like juniors. They really have it down, and this basket of breakfast pastries is amazing. Do you know what I found out yesterday? This juniors, right here in downtown Brooklyn, unlike the other ones that exist in Manhattan, this one is the only one now that does breakfast like this anymore. Can you believe that? I mean, it doesn't shock me that much. Things have really changed since we first started coming here. That's a fair point. I mean, look, none of these tall skyscrapers were here when we first came to this juniors 10, 15 years ago. Remember how there used to be that that shipping container village, like shopping place thing right around the corner? And a couple of parks around here. Now there are all these just huge high-rises. I feel like every time we come out here, there's another huge tower adding to the skyline, which, don't get me wrong, looks fantastic. But it's just crazy how fast things are changing. The times they are a-changing. I'm just starting to feel way out of touch with things, to the point where I don't even know what I can talk about anymore. How about them Yankees? Hi everyone, and welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the powerful show, Mothers and Sons. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. New York is no stranger to drama, and that goes double for the stage. But on today's episode, we are going to explore the tension that exists in a familiar relationship that doesn't often get depicted in the pivotal family drama, Mothers and Sons. This amazing work from the legendary Terrence McNally brought not only a powerful story, but powerful stars to the Great White Way, and moved and stirred audiences at each performance. But before we start into this tumultuous tale, we must first lay our groundwork. Mothers and Sons had its world premiere at the Bucks County Playhouse, Pennsylvania, in June 2013. After its successful run here, it was time to make its way over to the Broadway stage. Which makes this the perfect time to introduce our design team. The playwright was Terrence McNally, director Cheryl Collar, scenic designer John Lee Beatty, Costume designer, Jess Goldstein. Lighting designer, Jeff Kreuter. And sound designer, Kevin Steinberg. The show would arrive at the John Golden Theater on March 24th, 2014, where it would play 104 performances, closing on June 22nd, 2014. That season, the show would be nominated for two Tony Awards. So let's delve into this tumultuous relationship.
20 years after Catherine Girard lost her son to AIDS, she returns to New York to visit her son's partner, Cal. Her visit is a surprise and has left both her and Cal in shock as Cal reveals he is now married to a man named Will. As the two attempt to reconcile, the pain of the event after Andre's death boiled to the surface. Catherine is challenged to face how society has changed around her. To help her understand how the world has moved on, Cal tells Catherine about his and Will's son. She realizes that the world has moved on without her. She comes to terms with the grief her and Cal would have shared and sees the rich life her son might have led. The The end. end. Let's discuss the parts that we like, that we didn't like, and all of that stuff. Um, that was a really short synopsis, but I, I, I will say, uh, my outro, that was perfect. That there, there wasn't so much action that, you know, it, like a typical musical that, you know, you had to hit every pinpoint. That was perfect without giving away all the little secrets that take place. Well, and this show is really one of those discussion shows. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, without ev- without reading the script or viewing it, there's no way to really tell what all happens. Agreed. I was just about to say, I'm like, you left out a lot of intricate and intimate moments, and I was going to say, the best thing to do is to buy the script and read it, and then come back again and listen to this again, and you'll have... Even more, like this will be one of those, like you'll find all the Easter eggs, if you will. Well, something that I find fascinating about this show is it is a follow-up to a text from the 80s um, that was a screenplay. Go on. Um, I mean, the original, I can't remember the name of the movie or the film, but basically Andre is dying of AIDS and his mother doesn't want to come to terms and then he dies and um, the mom doesn't want to, or Catherine doesn't want to accept it that he died with a partner named Cal and so there's this big falling out and it's kind of just this thing of like look at how you know, Catherine was supposed to be the one that was there for her son um, but really Cal was there for her son, and she still wanted to keep Cal as far away from Andre as possible. Um, and that's kind of, it leaves a, it leaves a very sad note. And so this is kind of following up years later, where it's like, she still wants that closure that she never got, but it's her fault, whereas Cal got his closure. And he's like, listen, I loved Andre. I loved Andre all that I could. I loved your son. And you, you know, this is a you problem, not a me problem. And um, especially with this happening right around the time that gay marriage was legalized, it was kind of this idea of like, listen, you know, we're getting to a place where we're not going back in the closet. We're not, we're not going back and you can either move with us or you can choose to stay the same, but there are consequences to your actions. So I've done a little bit of nosing around, and I have found it. Um, see, I was thinking it was a film, and I was racking my brain about 
HIV films, and I was like, is it The Cure? Is it Philadelphia? You know, is that... No, it was a television play that McNally had written back in, the, in 1990 called Andre's Mother. Mm-hmm. So what a clever... What a clever cross-media... Uh, Right, it's the, it's a continuation of the story, but in two different mediums. Yeah, and so I feel like audiences who would, who are from the '90s, who grew up in the '90s, who were able to see that, got something even more out of someone like us who just came off the street, kind of thing, and and went into the show. I really enjoyed the show as well, and I really liked that and appreciated the characterization of um, of everyone. I I thought it was a true depiction. That a lot of parents were having in regards to not only the gay rights movement of the 80s and 90s, but also the AIDS epidemic. Well, and it's the aftermath of what the actions that people took during the um, the AIDS epidemic, like during the heat of it. It's kind of what happened after. Right. And when when we put the script together, I was, I was still knee-deep in a book um, uh, of fabulous book called how to, how to survive a plague and it was about the aids epidemic primarily here in new york and i was hearing stories like this about families that couldn't come to terms with their loved ones dying particularly from this horrible virus and seeing the show and the fact that she is in such denial and whatnot and blaming others and it's like but it's not it doesn't work that way it was really fascinating Especially because the sh- the show was not, if I remember right, based in the nineties. It was based in, in the now. It, yeah, in the two thousand fourteen when it was. And so I was like, "How can we be now?" And you are still with all the knowledge and all the know how. And I thought I think that's important that you mentioned it's two thousand fourteen. That's an important thing to note because it's now in two twenty twenty two. Given all the instability we, we face and. And things we've gone through. It doesn't shock us to be like, how can you really think that when we have all of this overwhelming evidence or something like that? There are people out there that still, they think this. But in 2014, it was like, how can a character have lived through that huge of event and still be like, and still not have an understanding? Well, and that's what I I really appreciate that Cal went on to get married and, you know, have a a kid and it shows her really that that would have been Andre's life even though she thought Andre was going to you know have this terrible life and he was going to you know when she she also blamed Cal for what happened to <coughs> Andre as if Andre didn't make his own choice the fact that he was gay well this is what happens when you're gay no you you have to make choices, you know. Not every not every gay person becomes ill with AIDS. That's not how that mm. works. It's not a, you know that's that is literally not how this this game works. Um, or the fact that she also chastised him for moving on, and it's like, what did you expect him to do? First of all, they weren't married. Cal and Andre were never married because mm. obviously it wasn't legal for one. But two, I mean, even look at it now. If, if you have a married couple and one of the partners unfortunately passes, is that other person expected to be alone forever? And in some generations, you know, you're supposed to have a long and happy marriage and then that's kind of it. However, in, in newer generations, if you will, right, 
Um, no, like there is a grieving period and maybe you still seek companionship and you still want, you don't want to feel lonely. You don't want to feel alone. And I feel like in, in, in Cal's relationship, he wanted a family. He wanted someone to share his life with and he went and got it. And, and uh, the mother, Tyne Daly's character just wasn't about that. And she's like, I don't understand why you still aren't grieving. And he's like, it has been 20 years. I do grieve him, but was I supposed to stop living? And so it showed how two different two generations deal with grief, um, which I really appreciated. Um, and I particularly appreciate and again, this is because I had that, that extra reading from the book I was reading. A lot of these young LGBTQ people who who survived and went through the the horrors of the AIDS epidemic had to learn how to grieve and whatnot on their own and then amongst themselves. There was no one, they did not have the wide span community that a lot of us have known and had today. Back then, I mean, they were very ostracized. So the fact that Cal has come, has been able to develop a community or a, a grief network to, to mourn the loss of Andre and then to move on is incredible and I feel like you know the mother character Catherine. What is, Catherine thank you I was like what is her name I want to call her by her name the fact that she I almost feel like threatened because maybe she didn't have that kind of network when her son died maybe she didn't have as big a community to help lift her up in the long term food for thought um, the other thing I wanted to say is um, the on stage chemistry amongst the, the actors was really fantastic um, I, it really felt like everything was clicking. It didn't feel forced. You really felt there was that ire between Tyne Daly and the actor that played Cal. But you also felt the immense love when the child came on stage. You felt the real tension when Will, the husband, comes on. You know, but you also, in the final moment, you felt the rush of emotion come over the stage and the healing began. Like you, you could feel that chemistry. It just felt natural. Well, and the thing that really gets me about that chemistry is you have Catherine who has kind of always refused to accept Cal's place in her life because they're not related. You know, he was, you know, just her son's, you know, partner. But... Through this, she I, I like to believe that the character realized that even though they're not family, this is what he was talking about, about choosing your family. Yes. And so, even though they may not be actual family, they're kind of family, her and Cal, because of what they went through together. And so her realizing that, um, I think, is kind of one of the more beautiful moments. Well, one thing that I want to mention that I absolutely loved was... Um, the humanity that existed, especially between Will, right, Cal's husband, mm-hmm. and Catherine, as he was trying to help Catherine to heal and mourn and move on. He didn't need to do that. He didn't know Catherine. He didn't know Cal. Or uh, Andre, excuse Andre. me. He didn't know Andre. And yet, his humanity was like, I have to help this woman. And whether that be because he's like, I have to help this woman, and the sooner I help her, the sooner she's gone. That might have been maybe his tactic, but it came more across as this is a woman who needs help. She is just so far gone. She needs help dealing with reality. 
and I, I can do I can be that person. I, I could be mean. I could be like, who are you? Get out of my house yet. Yeah, da, 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 da. Or I could just be like, you need someone to help you. And when the other shoe drops, I, I can be here for you because it's going to be hard. Because also, if memory serves me right, Catherine's husband is gone. Yeah. So she's alone. So she, well, and she's been alone for a while. Yeah. So she refuses to accept why and everything, the circumstances of her son's death. When she comes to those terms, oof. Uh, the last thing I want to say before we dive into our boxes. Boxes, boxes. Um, can we just admit, can we all just say it? Tyne Daly is a national treasure. I adore her. Um, she's just, I'll see her in anything. She's such an incredible, versatile actress. I adore her. Um, she's funny. But she also knows how to command the stage and really possess power and put the fear of God in you. But watching her emotional journey it was so moving and I'm blessed that I saw her in this role because I, I, knowing who she is as a person and then watching her play this role, it was a complete, like, I was God-smacked. I was like, hold on, this isn't who you are, Tyne. Like, you would never be this kind of a mother. Like, this isn't, you know, and, and but that's what makes her brilliant is we were, she was so good that we separated her off stage and we totally bought that she's from Texas and she's this mother that I don't care what you say about my son this isn't how he died no 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 it was something else and he wasn't this way and he didn't have that I mean she doesn't even accept the fact that he was gay mm -hmm. so it's <clears throat> it's incredible I love Tiny Ailey so why don't we delve into our boxes and why don't we start with the elaborate and fanciful set which really wasn't elaborate and fanciful. It was simple. It was it was also elegant though. The the beautiful is basically one set. It was the apartment of Cal and Wills, and basically it was just their living room. Really, I think we also, if memory serves me right, we could see the kitchen. Yeah, we could see the kitchen. And then there was like a hall on the side. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of those apartments that living here in New York, you're like, how do I get that? Right. I love when they depict apartments in, in shows, like New York apartments and shows, because living here in New York, you're like, Cute. how? How did you get that? <laughs> you know? Um, but it was, there was, um, it was just, it was just beautiful, and I remember lots of creams and whites um, colors on like the, the walls and the furniture. I the blues and grays. Oh, see, well, let's fight about it. Um, but there was something just welcoming, but also debate worthy about it being in the living room. Um, I, I don't know. That's a weird way to put it. Right. So what I mean by that is you're in the living room. We set it in the living room. You welcome people in your living room. Right. But also the living room is where a lot of discussion happens. A lot of debate. You don't want to debate over the dinner table. Like, I've never seen any, in any, like, film, TV, or show where a great, wholesome debate has happened over the dinner table. Exception, and it's the perfect time of year, is a Hallmark Christmas movie, but those, I feel like, exist in their own space, because ain't nobody really living that kind of life. Let's be real. No big-time financial person from New York is going to a small farm in Iowa, falling in love. No, that's not happening. 
And if it is, congratulations. But I digress. No great debate really tends to happen around the dining room table or in the bedroom or in the kitchen or in the bathroom. However, you see great moments of debate really in the living room. So I love that they the, all all they actually happened in the living room. It was welcoming, but that's also like the set for the debate. Um, and with the couch being the only thing kind of in that room, it was the only thing to either separate or unite them. So either they can sit, you know, or stand apart being separated by this couch and exchanging words, or they could be sitting on this couch <coughs> coming together. And I thought that was a really brilliant set choice because if it were a table or something, there would always be something in the in between them. Mm-hmm. But by making it the couch, if you had Kathy and... Catherine. Catherine, thank you. Catherine and Cal sit down on the couch. What separates them at that point then? Mm-hmm. And you can see them coming together or will even, you know... Uh, there was a brilliant moment when there was Catherine and Cal on opposite ends of the couch, but then their son comes up in the middle. You know, and I was just like, this is a brilliant, like, I, it's one of those moments you don't think about too much, but it when the set lends itself to help the direction and just the overall text, you've got nowhere to hide or hide between. You've got nothing to separate you. And so you are, you're vulnerable. You're out in the open and, you, and it's all out there. And I feel like, Cal and Will had nothing to hide, but it was Catherine who was hiding. And she was hiding in her own veil of ignorance. And and she didn't want to see the truth, but what did she have to hide behind in this room where everything took place? Especially since it wasn't her room. Mm-hmm. So she couldn't, and it wasn't her place, so she couldn't escape to go tidy up the dishes, clean up the room, something like that. You know what I mean? Like she couldn't go do that. So the set design was brilliant in that that's where they, they're like, we're going to do it in the living room and we're only going to have this one thing in the in, in between. I thought mm-hmm. that was smart. Yeah. No, I think that it did exactly what it was supposed to do. So should we go on to costume? Definitely. Um, I mean, the costumes were very real. They were exactly what they needed to be. Um, they helped depict, um, you know, kind of... Cal being, you know, kind of a smart New Yorker. Will being kind of a smart New Yorker. um, Dressed well. But then you had, you know, Catherine, who was kind of dressed a little gaudy because she's from Texas. Right. I like the elegant dresses and the fur coats that really emphasize that she was a Texas heiress, almost. It gave a very vintage Dallas feeling to it. (laughs) For those of you young listeners, Dallas was a TV show from the 80s. Um, anyway, um, yeah, and I think that you hit it on the head about Cal and Will. I mean, two men that were much more casual and comfortable in basic, like, baseball t-shirts and sweaters. That was their home. Yeah, they were just comfortable. They were, you know, whereas yes, Catherine didn't look comfortable, ever. No, and uh, and I'm glad you brought that up, because one thing I loved about that economy that it showed, um, or, or, or the difference between their outfits, is not, uh, there was an economy... A dichotomy in their status, but also in their feeling regards towards their place in New York City. So clearly, like, Catherine had the higher status. She had the wealth. She had all of that, right? And she was showing that in the fur coats and everything. But you hit them on the head in that 
she never looked in place. She looked uncomfortable and out of place. Like, who, yeah, she didn't belong there. Who wears that kind of a dress and a fur coat to an apartment just to see an old boyfriend of your son? You know, mm-hmm. where they were all just comfortable and like, this is our home and we're just chill and we're relaxed. And even though they aren't wearing jewels and a tux and everything, they're the ones that look right and she looks crazy. I think you, exactly, you nailed it. Mm-hmm. Bingo. Win the day. Well, that's what the nice thing about this show was, is it was very simple and realistic, um, which is why we should move on to the lights. Yeah, it was simple and soft, gentle whites and grays. Really nothing too flashy, just simple. It was just real, real, real. Just real? Was it real? It was real. It's a jackal. Um, It was simple lighting to keep a room lit, allowing us to be invested in the conversation. There was a little bit of passing of time where, you know, as it started to get a little darker, then they turned on lamps and whatnot, but... This, the lighting, I mean, so we've mentioned this before, if your design element stands out, there's a good chance that either it's not working with the other design elements, or, like, like in a great show, you shouldn't notice any of the design elements. It should all just... Well, they shouldn't stick out. That's what I mean. Yeah, they shouldn't stick you out. Should know, you can notice them, but yeah, they shouldn't stick out. And this out. is a show that it was great. I just didn't notice it because it, it did exactly what it needed to do. And there was not really anything to feature the lighting for. We didn't have a lightning storm. We didn't have a dance party. You Which know? is fine. We lit the apartment. It set the space. It set the tone. And that's what it did. And then we were involved in the conversation. If there had been a moment <clears throat> where a light had gone out or something like that and they hadn't lit it or what have you, then there would have been an issue. So now let's let's move on to, to the next one, which is the direction. And I feel like we've really been talking a lot about the direction, but let's talk about it some more. I appreciated the direction of the show for the most part. I found that it was quite the slow-burning, simmering drama. Um... You know, it it didn't. It wasn't like a roller coaster going yeah yeah uh, you know up and down. It it was slow burning, and then when we finally started getting to, like, where we, like when things started taking off, when when Will and Cal really kind of put the issue at the front, um, we started finally reaching the climax and and seeing where Catherine finally breaks. Was beautiful that build up to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Hearing her wail, but he was my son. You know them just finally having enough of her and just saying, you know, you don't understand. Da 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 da. He made his choice. He did this. He did that. He was gay. It had nothing. That's what. So here, here is the thing about the brilliance of Terrence McNally's writing. And even, and I will say the brand to the direction. When the show starts, the impression you get from Catherine is that she's a bigot. And that she's never accepted the fact that her son was gay and then he died of AIDS. And then he had this lifestyle, right? And she does kind of give off that. But it's a front. That's not what upset her. And when they finally forced her to get to the root of it, what at the end of the day it was is that it's, he was her son. And she just misses her son. 
And when she just has that primal breakdown and she just yells, but he was my son. I mean, you can't help but feel your heartbreak for her. I, it reminded me of John Proctor from The Crucible when they're like, why won't you just admit? And he finally just goes, but it is my name. It is all I have. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it was just such a stirring moment where you finally realize that she loved him. She's not mad about him being gay. She's not mad about the AIDS. She is so mad at the world because she lost the most important thing to her. And mm-hmm. she know she knows she messed up and not being there when he died. She knows that she messed up, but she just can't. She can't come to terms with what happened. And how do you punish yourself? So you get mad at the world and everyone else in it. And she just has that break. And it's so moving. So I love how they built, how the director just built that up. Um, And we did get that nice denouement afterwards. It just didn't hit that break. And then the lights came up. We got like the epilogue after so that we could come down and resolve it. Um, I did feel there could have been a few more accelerated moments or different tactics perhaps used rather than the coldness that was all around. Um, but at the same time, the, the shrugging off in the distance, it did make that more impactful. What was, what's hard about this is the show... <laughs> Follow me on this. I feel like this show is a little bit like Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Where once you know where it goes and you go and see it again, it's a different version the second time, right? Mm -hmm. And things make more sense and they click a lot more. So things that didn't quite do it for you the first time, now that you know where they're going. uh, Let me go about this a different way. So you had told me when it came to making the Harry Potter films that... Alan um, Rickman Mm -hmm. was the only one that J.K. Rowling told how the series was going to end. And so he basically was acting, knowing that information, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's how the story is being portrayed. So it doesn't make quite a lot of sense the first time you see it. And you're like, why... There's like a disconnect. It's cold. She's shrugging them off. There's all this. What are you doing here if you're just trying to start fires, Catherine? And then when you get to that big confrontation moment at the end of the show and she has that break and you see where she's coming from, everything, everything that happened in the beginning makes an an enormous amount of sense. And you go, "Ah, ha, ha, ha. But that's the game. That's the goal. And that works perfectly. If you had changed the beginning the end would not be as powerful and impactful. And so that's why I'm like, maybe we could have done a little bit more and thrown a few more pies here. But I'm like, but would it have taken away from that ending? Because that ending, seeing Tyne Daly grip the back of the couch and yell, he was my son, and then just start to crumble. I mean, maybe it's just because it's Tyne Daly, but it, I, it just reached out and it grabbed me and I went, oh my God. Because the whole time I was like, can someone send the bigoted woman from Texas back? This is insane. She is invading these people's home. Like, you have no claim to these people's space. Then when she breaks, <laughs> I was like, wait, now hold on a minute. We have to help this person. 
She just needs the mourn. Did anyone mourn with her? How do you write that on a page? You know what I mean? Like that. That was chef's kiss. So. The show has had several notable performers, including Frederick Weller, Bobby Steger, and Tyne Daly. talk about the impact the show's had on the theater and its history starting with theatrical impact um this was another fantastic work from the incredible the legendary may he rest forever in peace terrence mcnally gone way too soon terrence mcnally um friends countrymen read all the terrence mcnally you can he is a brilliant playwright um, I don't think I've ever seen a play of his or read a play of his, and I'm like, yeah, maybe not. Um, and this one is no no exception to that. This was a brilliant show. Um, I also would say this is um, this was another great performance from Time Daily. One of America's greatest national treasures. Like, let's be real. Ms. Daly, if you're listening, we believe you are one of America's greatest national treasures. Come on, wouldn't it be cool if she was listening? It'd be really cool if she was listening. I would, I I would die. I would die. I would absolutely die. Um, but but to me, the, those are the big theatrical impacts. That this show I think had. the the thing about this show is I would like for the societal impact to be the more important mm-hmm. um, because I feel like the show is a snapshot of history. Yeah. Because. Um, this is kind of one of those plays that sits at the bridge between um, what what kind of existed before um, gay marriage was the law of the land and what would be after. You know what I mean? And so it's important to have that history of like of people coming to terms with what had happened during the AIDS epidemic. See, for me, if I were to pick a bridge in that statue... I, and see, I don't, I'm not a professor of, of, of queer history, but I would say whatever wave of, of gay rights or, or, you know, happened in the 80s and 90s, right? You know, like you've got the first wave of feminism, second wave of feminism kind of thing. We had that wave of gay rights in the 80s and 90s, right? Mm-hmm. And that really was fueled by, I feel like, the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. And then there was another one kind of in the late 90s and early 2000s. Then there was a third one, really, that came about with the legalization of gay marriage in, like, 2008 and on, right? And I feel like the bridge covers from, like, 1990 to – it covers that, that wave that happened in from, like, 1995 to 2005, that decade of whatever gay rights movement was happening in that decade. So between the AIDS, the, 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 the height of the AIDS epidemic – to gay marriage, whatever was that gay rights movement, that's the bridge that this covers. See, I I mean, we can agree to disagree on that um, because I think that this show more bridges the human element 
because you do have, um, you have basically. Um, I I think it's human because Catherine's stuck in the mindset of the eighties, where Will and Cal are in obviously the now, and this play offers that insight of how do you get someone from that mindset of back then to the now? How do you make them understand that not only has society, but medicine. And family dynamics, more importantly, have changed. Well, and I I think you're misunderstanding what I mean by bridge. Um, I think that what I mean by bridge is this is a historical bridge where it shows the transition happening. It shows this transition period that people were going through. We're using two different terms. I'm literally using the term of like bridge where it'll like the two without having to delve into that decade of history. Yeah, no, no, no. This is... This is a <clears throat> this show can be used in a queer history sense to Got show it. where that transition was happening. Got it. Um, yeah, because I think the biggest thing, like I said, is is this show. I mean, family dynamics. Like I said, we have we have a gay we have two gay dads with a kid, mm-hmm. and it's the norm is a thing. It's not being depicted as. Look how special this is. It's like... No, this is normal. And this is why I call it a transition piece because it shows how everything that we went through in the 80s and 90s with the gay rights there. movement got us to where we are so that these people... And these are the people who did it. Which is you know, which was weird when we were putting the script together to say that that was normal. And I'm like, yeah, but it is normal. But and it just felt genera- weird saying that it was Well, normal. there's a whole generation of kids that are growing up right now that have never lived... When gay marriage hasn't been legal. They didn't understand the... They may not... There are less kids who have to deal with the idea that it's weird that Tommy has two moms or something like that. Yeah. Which is great. Which is great. Which I think is the most important societal impact of this show. Yeah. It offered the perspective of the parents regard... It, for me, it offered the perspective of the parents regarding the AIDS epidemic and the gay rights movement as well. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like that's one thing we don't see a lot of on the stage is the parents. And I know I can understand why a lot of people who were writing down the history of the epidemic and tied to the theater, where were the parents? Yeah. But yeah. to be able to put someone up there. And what I love, though, also, she is a flawed character. Well, and her son never got the reconciliation. With her. And so we do, do not misunderstand that when we talk about Catherine's break and we're like, oh, we feel for her, that doesn't mean she's redeemed. It just shows that she is human. And in everything that I've heard from most people who have lived and died and seen and gone through, I don't hear a lot of vengeance. I hear more forgiveness, truly more humanity. So the fact that she isn't redeemed, like, not completely redeemed, but you still get that, oh, you are human still quality as opposed to you're a monster, makes you go, that's probably how a, a true victim of this horrific event might depict you. At the end of the day, there's still love there. Mm-hmm. I don't know a lot of people that go through horrible events and just go, I hate. They probably love more, but... That's a soapbox for another episode. So then I think comes the question, is this show relevant? So I'm a huge fan of Terrence McNally, and I really did enjoy this work. I think it's perfect for regional and touring houses, possibly even collegiate houses. Um, Well, especially where this show can serve as a historical 
reference. Yes. But in regard to Broadway, I don't think now is the right time for it. No. I think there are better stories and more writers who need their voices heard uh, for the time being. So this is a no on Broadway for me. I, I agree. we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. We had the good fortune of seeing the show back in 2014, as we clearly said. Um, we saw the matinee of this performance. And I, I, I think I speak for both of us. We liked it. We loved it. Mm-hmm. We want some more of it. Um, meeting the cast afterwards, as small as it was, all four of them, uh, it was fantastic. But the, I mean, the cherry on top really was... Meaning Tyne Daly. I mean, it, I remember it, we walked down the alley. So this is before they started putting up the barricades on 45th Street and making you wait there. So we walked down all the way to the giant metal door where the Majestic, the Golden, and the Jacobs Theater have their stage shorts, right? And there's a bench on the end. I remember sitting on the bench and we waited and Ms. Daly came out and... She was so nice, and she signed, and we got a picture, and she... I was over the moon. It was like meeting, you know, a president or something. Um, I just, I'm, I'm, I love everything she's done, and I think she's... You think the world of her, I can tell. <laughs> I do! I just, I love the role she's played both on screen and on stage. Uh, I think she plays just so many uh, versatile roles. Important roles, and she also off, you know, off screen, off stage. She's an incredible human being that has a lot of great causes and great messaging. Um, and I, I love when someone is just as good, like a good human, off stage as they are on. You know that that means the world to me. That makes me want to support them even more. I'm thinking of people like Judith Light, um, Will Swenson. Uh, uh, Hugh Jackman, who you work with, you know, the fact that he really is just such a great person off the stage and in real life as he is on the stage, it makes you want to go the extra mile to to do good for them, you know. So that that just sticks in my mind. I'm like, what a wonderful person. So You'll be able to catch Mother and Son sometime at a theater near you, hopefully. We also remind you that you can now become a producer and a patron of the show by getting your backstage pass. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. 
our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Mela, Kevin McLeod, Jesse Spillane, Evan Schaefer, and Billy Murray. <laughs>